Some academics are concerned that the Israel-Gaza war is having a chilling effect on academic freedom. In this episode, we're speaking to an Israeli legal scholar, now based in the UK, about the pressures that academics and students are facing to rein in their views about the conflict. This is the second of two episodes we're running on how the Israel-Gaza war is affecting life at universities. You can scroll back up our feed to listen to the first part, which features an interview with David Mednikoff, Chair of the Department of Judaic and Near Eastern Studies at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst in the US, and he talks about what's been happening on his campus. I'm Gemma Ware, and this is The Conversation Weekly, The World Explained by Experts. Our guest today is Neve Gordon. After teaching for 17 years at a university in the south of Israel, Neve moved to the UK in 2016, and he's now a professor of human rights and humanitarian law at Queen Mary University of London. His research looks at the laws of war, with a special focus on Israel-Palestine, and he's also published about definitions of anti-Semitism. He's also the vice president of the British Society for Middle Eastern Studies, or BRISMUS, and the chair of its Committee on Academic Freedom. When I spoke to Neve, he wanted to start our conversation with a short history lesson about the origins of the term academic freedom. The idea of freedom of the university to pursue knowledge first emerged in the Middle Ages as a kind of defense from the church and from those in power that the universities will become self-governing corporation with the freedom to organize their own faculties, control admission, and establish certain standards of research and teaching. Later on, William von Humboldt created a university in Berlin in 1811, and he said that the two principles that should guide the university was freedom to teach and freedom to learn. And from that emerged the concept of academic freedom. And the whole idea of freedom to teach and freedom to learn was based also on his understanding of truth. The truth is something that we need to pursue because it is something that is constantly developing. And if we look at our ideas of truth in science or economics, or in sociology, we know that ideas that we held to be true several years ago, maybe hundreds of years ago, but sometimes only 10, 20 years ago, we don't consider them to be true today due to new findings and so forth. And the idea that in order to, to be able to search for truth, we need to have a certain freedom that the dominant views do not kind of suppress the academic endeavor in search of knowledge and truth. In his role at BRISMUS, the British Middle Eastern Studies Association, Neve has been closely following the way the war is affecting academic freedom. He also chaired a webinar on the issue in November. Can you give me some examples of what's been happening and these cases that you, you've been made aware of in your work? What we've seen in the UK is we've seen suspension of students and staff from their universities. We've seen cancelling of events. We've seen cancelling of student activities like protest sit-ins. 
I think there was a few cases of students that were arrested. We've seen students that their visas are threatened to be revoked. Uh, so we've seen this major clampdown on academic freedom. We have one example that made headlines here in the UK, a letter sent by the Secretary of State, Science, Innovation and Technologies, Michelle Donnellan, to the head of the UK Research and Innovation, which is the major funding agency for academic research in the country. Donnellan sent this letter to UKRI, as it's known, on October the 28th. In it, she expresses concern about statements made on social media by two members of an advisory committee on equality, diversity and inclusion at Research England, which is part of UKRI. So, for example, one person tweeted that Israel is an apartheid and carrying out genocidal violence against the Palestinians in Gaza. And Donnellan said this is anti-Semitic. And yet... Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch put out reports last year claiming that according to human rights law, Israel is carrying out the crime of apartheid. 900 scholars from around the world put out a statement saying that the kind of violence we're witnessing and the kind of policies we're witnessing in the Gaza Strip today are genocidal. Just a little note here, if you want to learn more about the term genocide and the way that different people are using it to describe both the Hamas attacks on Israel and the Israeli assault on Gaza, do listen to our recent episode on the subject from late November. Now, in response to Donnellan's letter to the UKRI, more than 1,300 academics signed an open letter criticising it as an attempt at censorship. But in its own response to Donnellan a few days later, the head of UKRI said that it would suspend the operations of the advisory group and launch an investigation. This sparked a backlash against UKRI from some academics who accused it of failing to defend the equality group. Several academics resigned as peer reviewers as a result. The UKRI clamped down basically on academic freedom within its own body And that sent a chilling message across the country, both to staff members and students. Hey, there's things, even if they're true, you're not allowed to say them because the minister doesn't like them and it can have effect on your career and on your studies. In a statement published on the UKRI website addressing the ongoing criticism, its chief executive, Professor Dame Ottoline Leysa, said, We are fully committed to the principles of freedom of speech within the law and equality, diversity and inclusion. And she said that UKRI was adopting a well-governed process to support evidenced, principled decisions. The conversation reached out to speak to the two academics at the heart of the controversy. One declined to comment because the investigation was ongoing and the other didn't respond to our email. Just to be clear, are most of the cases that you are coming across censure for academics or students expressing criticism of Israel rather than criticism of Hamas? Yes, it's either a criticism of Israel or it's claims that there is some kind of sympathy for Hamas or support for Hamas. Neve told me that there are many layers to the attacks on academic freedom that he's heard about in recent weeks. 
Some of them are small, like schools or faculties not tweeting about events or sharing articles that they probably would have done in the past. He's heard about staff who've been called in for casual discussions with heads of department. No further action followed, but the effect was chilling, he says. And then all the way up to investigations, disciplinary hearings and arrests. And Neve says that this isn't unique to the UK. Students and academics around the world are being investigated and suspended for expressing their views on the Israel-Gaza war. So in Israel, the situation is worse than anywhere else. We have, as we speak, several students sitting behind bars, some of them for Facebook that basically express empathy for the suffering of the Palestinians. And that can be enough to either suspend you or dismiss you from a university or even to put you behind bars. Neve told me he's heard of 113 cases of students and staff who've been suspended or dismissed, and at least 10 students who've been arrested for their criticism of Israel's attack on Gaza. This is unprecedented, uh, and I say this as an Israeli that's well aware of the scene there. In the United States, it is also now very risky to express empathy with the Palestinians. We have, for example, in a university like Columbia University, the Student Society for uh, Students for Justice for Palestine, or Jewish Voices for Peace, two student societies in that universities that were suspended because they organized a protest calling for ceasefire on Gaza. Now, we have staff and students across the United States, again, that have been suspended. Many student societies have been suspended, even though freedom of speech in the United States is the part of the First Amendment and is protected through its constitution. We see how easily it can be clamped down. When it comes to Europe, Neve singled out the situation in Germany. Germany has outlawed any kind of protest supporting Palestinian rights and does not allow any kind of speech supporting Palestinian rights. And I've talked to German colleagues in the past month and they say it's just untenable. So one of my fields is Israel-Palestine. I'm getting phone calls from friends in different universities in different countries saying that they want to cancel their Israel-Palestine course for next semester because they're afraid that things that they will say in class can be interpreted by students as anti-Semitic because they will say, for example, Israel's committing the crime of apartheid, which according to certain definitions is anti-Semitic. He stressed that all this is happening at a time when anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are on the rise in Europe and the United States. In the UK, the Community Security Trust, which tracks incidents of anti-Semitism, recorded 1,890 anti-Semitic incidents in the two months between October the 7th and December the 6th. That's an increase of 528% on the same period last year. According to Tel Mama, which records anti-Muslim incidents in the UK, Islamophobic incidents went up by 600% in the month after October the 7th, compared to the same period the previous year. It's not as if 
anti-Semitism doesn't exist out there. Anti-Semitism before the war on Gaza was alive and kicking in the UK. I have two children that go to a comprehensive school in London. Both of them experienced anti-Semitism during their studies here. And yet all the energy is now used to kind of fight what I don't think is anti-Semitism, it's criticism of Israel. I've read that there is a rise in the real anti-Semitism, both here in the UK, in the United States, and across Europe. But we need to direct our attention against that anti-Semitism. And we need to also recognize that there is a massive rise of Islamophobia. And our leaders are saying nothing about the rise in Islamophobia. And also our university leaders are saying very little about the rise of Islamophobia in this context. Throughout our conversation, Neve referred to the way the definition of anti-Semitism has widened in recent decades and the problems that he sees with that. In particular, he's critical of a working definition of anti-Semitism published in 2016 by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, the IHRA. It defines anti-Semitism as a certain perception of Jews which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed towards Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and or their property toward Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. The definition has been adopted in the UK, the US, Australia and in many European countries. Neve recently published academic research critiquing the IHRA definition, and in particular some of the examples that accompany it. These include that holding Jews collectively responsible for actions of the State of Israel and drawing comparisons of contemporary Israeli policy to that of the Nazis could be anti-Semitic. Traditional anti-Semitism was the utterances of hate speech towards Jews. It was the idea of the Protocols of Elders of Zion where Jews control the world through the banking system or they control the media, where certain attributes and characteristics are put on Jews like a long nose. Jews are described with long noses and that is connected somehow to greed and so forth. So it's both nefarious kind of attributes that are are connected to Jews, but also it's kind of this idea that Jews control the world. And this was used in order to introduce racialized form of governance and repression of Jews. And ultimately, in World War II, the extermination of six million Jews based on this anti-Semitic view. Later, the different proponents of Israel wanted to expand the definition of anti-Semitism so that it doesn't only include the traditional anti-Semitism, but any harsh criticism of Israel or any anti-Zionist stance will also be conflated with anti-Semitism. And what we've seen is that actually the conflation of anti-Semitism with harsh criticism of Israel or anti-Zionism is what is being now used in UK campuses to stifle speech on Palestine. 
In 2020, the then UK Secretary of State for Education, Gavin Williamson, wrote to universities, threatening them with funding cuts if they didn't adopt the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. In September this year, the British Middle Eastern Studies Association published a report about the impact that the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism was having on academic freedom and freedom of speech in UK higher education. The research was based on analysis of cases submitted to the European Legal Support Centre, which provides legal support for those advocating for Palestinian rights, including academics and students. What we saw before even the war on Gaza and the, and the October 7th events is that this definition was being used as a kind of chill effect. And we went and looked at 40 cases between 2017 where students, staff and students groups were accused of being anti-Semitics. A lot of them were put under investigation, some of them under disciplinary hearing. In 38 of these 40 cases in which the European Legal Support Centre was involved, the accusation of anti-Semitism was not upheld. Two of the 40 cases are still ongoing. Now, some people might say that this is a good thing, but what we say is that the threat and, and the accusation of anti-Semitism has created a chill effect, that people are afraid to speak out about Palestinian rights because they're afraid of being branded anti-Semitic, because if you're branded anti-Semitic, then ultimately that will hurt your reputation, that can uh, damage your career prospects, and so forth. Even if it's not true, once it's up there on the internet, it, it is really damaging. Come the war on Gaza, and we see an exponential growth in cases. So the European Legal Support Center that deals with approximately 100 cases in the UK, Holland and Germany together per year, suddenly was dealing with almost 100 cases in a month in the UK. I asked Neve why he thought the Israel-Gaza war had become such a flashpoint for academic freedom. I think it's an excellent question because we didn't see it regarding Ukraine and Russia. We didn't see it regarding Syria. We didn't see it in other conflicts in recent years. The same kind of clamping down. And so I think there's a certain history here that is related to the crimes that European countries committed against the Jews, okay? And then the solution for those crimes was support of creation of Israel as a Jewish homeland for the Jews. So we will resolve the crimes we committed on European soil in the Middle East at the expense of another people, the Palestinians. And now when this other people are saying, hey, you were solving your crimes at our expense, but we also deserve liberation and emancipation and self-determination. It's a certain kind of critique of Europe, right? And the way it resolved the problem. And Europe doesn't want to hear that. There's a certain kind of settler-colonial alliance between the United States and Israel. Israel is 
considered the U.S. fort in, in the Middle East. And then we have geopolitical interests today in the Middle East that all support Israel. And therefore, even if Israel is carrying out horrendous war crimes and crimes against humanity, the political leaders support it. And the way to support it is not allowing civil society actors, in our case, staff members in universities and students, to criticize the actions of Israel. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Neve. We really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of The Conversation Weekly. We'll put some links to more coverage from The Conversation on the Israel-Gaza war and the impact it's having on university campuses in our show notes. This episode was written and produced by me, Gemma Ware, and Mend Marawani, with assistance from Katie Flood. I'm also the show's executive producer. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Saal. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor, Alice Mason runs our social media, and Soraya Nandi does our transcripts. You can connect with us on Instagram at theconversation.com, on X, formerly known as Twitter, at tc underscore audio, or email us directly at podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and The Conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com. And please rate and review the show wherever you listen, as it really helps us reach a wider audience. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.